of 2 Timothy. That's pretty far to the right. Unless you're looking at the screen, in which case it's straight ahead. It's good to be here in the house of the Lord with friends and family. First and foremost, I'm glad to have my amazing family, my wife Rachel and all four of my children that are here with me. This is abnormal if we travel to all be together, but this is also our fall break. And so we're kind of double dipping. And um, I know in Illinois, fall break is a foreign thing. At least I think it is the way we do it. But um, we're here together. We spent the first few days of last week with a staycation. How many know a staycation is pretty good? You don't always need a vacation from your staycation. <laughs> and it's cheaper, praise God. But it's great to be here and have them here together, certainly to be here with my parents, my family, my brother and sister-in-law, nieces, nephews, those that are here, and so many friends here that are part of this church. And uh, I'm an Illinois boy, so it's good to be home. I've had a great time being a part of our men's conference. And uh, Pastor and Sister Nave, love y'all. Thanks for all you do. There's a heavy load upon you for this church, but also this district. We understand that. We recognize that. All right, let's go to work. 2 Timothy chapter 4. I'm going to read verse 19 through 22. I like to tell people what verses I'm reading. Sometimes the preacher just starts reading and you wonder if they're ever going to stop. Come on, you've been there. You lie, you fry. You know it. I mean, not you, but others have done it. Others, not you. Verse 19 of 2 Timothy chapter 4. Salute Priscilla and Aquila, household of Onephorus. Rastus abode at Corinth, but Trophimus have I left sick. Left him at Miletum sick. Do thy diligence to come before winter. He's writing, this is Paul, the aged Paul from prison, writing to young Timothy, his protege. Ebulus greeteth thee. Budens and Linus, Claudia and all the brethren. The Lord Jesus Christ be with thy spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. I want to draw my assignment here today from the Lord from the 20th verse of this final letter of Paul to this young man that's coming after him. Here Paul from prison using the book as we refer to it, honestly, a letter inspired by the Lord. It's this very book in the chapter previous where we draw one of the most important scriptures in the Holy Writ where it tells us that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. We don't believe that people just came up with these words. We believe that this is the Holy Writ. God breathed words. He used men. How many know he used men? And I would remind you, he still uses people. But Paul, used by the Lord, writing this letter to his, to his young protege, he writes some tough words, and I want to use them. This is not what I would have selected for being here today, but I feel strongly impressed of the Lord. And so I preach to you from verse 20. 
on this thought, Trophimus, have I left sick? Trophimus, yeah, I left him, I left him there. Pray with me, would you? Lord, we love you. <clears throat> I want to do some honor to your word here today. These are great people. They've given up a sunshine Sunday to spend a couple hours in your house. I, I, I know it's right. For the Bible tells us that we're not supposed to forsake the assembling together of the congregation. We're supposed to come together. So I pray you'd help me to preach with wisdom and clarity under the anointing of the Holy Ghost. I pray you'd help every hearer to also be a receiver. God, that we would be not only momentary but in long-term responsive to your word. That it might do its intended work and purpose in our life. And let everybody say amen. God bless you. You may be seated. A lot of people in the Bible, a lot of stories in the Bible, a lot of individuals, dynamic things that I would love to have seen and been a part of. We've just come out of our men's conference, and I will be honest, every man in this room, if if we could just tell you the truth, it'd be a lot easier to watch the Bible than read it. <laughs> I always have said if we could open the Bible and some kind of a hologram could just pop up, more men would probably spend time in the book. But there's a lot of incredible stories, a lot of incredible people. But I want everybody in the room to hear me as we get started today. They were people. We have this, uh, unfortunately, this thing we do sometimes. We so romanticize the individuals of the text that we call them characters rather than people. They're not some part of fantasy. They were real people. But the subconscious of this... Maybe the underlying psychology, as it were, is that if there were simply characters, we don't have to live up to what they did. But the truth is, they were just people. Like you and like me, and they had testimonies. They had good days and they had bad days. They had ups and they had downs, kind of like our song was singing here today. And I appreciate our worship team. If you walked in this way, you can walk out that way and yet sometimes you sing it and don't <laughs> doesn't always happen you think well I'm just a normal person well ladies and gentlemen guess what so were they they were just normal and the guy whose letter we're reading today was a normal dude and if you'll allow me I'd like to start by just reminding or maybe sharing for some of us it's more familiar than others. But long before Paul is writing letters, he's carrying them. He's a bad dude. Now, he was a good guy for the wrong side. Let me say it that way. He was a wrecking ball against Christianity. He was dynamic. He was gifted. He was well-versed. He was everything from fluent in multiple speeches to a tent maker. If you got in a bind in the classroom, you wanted to borrow his notes. You went on a camping trip and he was your guy. 
You got in a fight? You want Saul. You want him there. All the way down to the fact that if you just need somebody to hold the coach while you whip somebody else. He was the guy in your corner. Everybody needs somebody in your corner you can depend on. Saul was that guy. Pastor Navy was brilliant, but he was also a fighter. And he was bold as a lion. He was bold as a lion. And he hated believers. You know why he hated believers? Because he was educated to hate believers. Please hear me at the beginning of this message. For those of you that think, well, I can't believe they're against us. Many have been trained. Saul was not a bad man. He was a great man. He was a Pharisee among Pharisees. He had sat at the feet of Gamaliel. He was well-versed, well-trained. He was a great believer. He just believed in the wrong thing. And when we first get our introduction to him, that's where he is at. He's at the stoning of our first martyr by the name of Stephen, whose blood would literally become the lubricant that helps drive the church out of Jerusalem and into all of those areas in all Judea, Samaria, the uttermost part of the earth. As mentioned in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, the problem had not been the outpouring of the Spirit. That had happened. The problem had been they were having such great church in Jerusalem, they hadn't gone anywhere. And so Stephen has to die and the Lord lets Saul be involved with this mob of people. And then he ends up as the guy with letters in his pocket because he asks for letters to Damascus and ends up on a journey. But on that road to the Damascus where he was going to persecute the believers that were there, how many remember something happened to Saul? Saul had the kind of revelation that maybe is the most dramatic in the entirety of the text, certainly in the New Testament, where a bright light shining above the brightness of the sun knocks him down off of his beast, and all of a sudden this Saul, persecutor of Christians, is saying, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord speaks to him and says, I'm Jesus. What do you think I am? Whom thou persecutest? He said, it's hard for thee to kick against the bricks. And all of a sudden there's this transition and Saul remains blind but has a revelation until he is led. Three days later, there is an individual that is coming to him. It's a preacher by the name of Ananias. And when Ananias lays hands upon him, scales, as it were, fall from the eyes of Saul. And Saul can begin. Listen, it's important. Let's just take a preacher pause. And remember, it was a necessity, even in the most dramatic revelation of the New Testament, that even then, while he had heard audibly from the Lord, the Lord still set it up so that he would have a preacher in his life to finish the revelation we need the gathering we need the body but he was trying to so engraft Saul that we would begin to call Paul into the body he needed the, the, the dramatic nature of that revelation and transformation on the road to Damascus to be fulfilled through the hands of Ananias so that when they begin to dovetail him into the body they could begin to accept him because nobody wanted Saul at the church now listen I know what it means for us to get up here and say we want everybody until you know that part of the everybody is the guy who has been beating up and imprisoning every Christian 
and believer that he can find. That's a little suspicious. And we even get up in our songs and we sing about the delivering power of God. Anybody, anywhere. We, that's how we preach it. It's how we teach it. Until we hear Saul is coming to church. That's a good Sunday to go on vacation. <laughs> and the Lord speaks to Ananias because, listen, regardless of their past, we have to believe people can have a new present. And it's easier to preach than to live out sometimes. And it's easier to sing than to actually witness. But we have to believe that if Saul Ladies and gentlemen, if Saul could have that kind of transformation, then surely we can still see people have that kind of transformation. In fact, I might would put some of you on witness here today. There are people that while you look good today, you know the not too long ago version of you. I'm not saying you were a Christian killer or a persecutor, but you might have been a lying mess. <laughs> you might have been the worst drunk that anybody. But thank God that he's transforming. In fact, the very letters would tell us that we are not to conform to the world, but rather to be transformed by what? The renewing of our mind, and that's what happened in the life of Saul. Hear me clear. The Lord transformed the life of Saul. He did a sovereign and a real and a powerful work in his life. And when he did that work, Saul was not the same as he had been before. And ladies and gentlemen, I speak to you today as I launch into this, telling you he is still in the transforming business. He still has the ability to heal, to deliver, to turn people's lives around. He has the ability to take those that have been addicted to substances and those who have riddled pasts that they are not proud of. He has the ability. But the second part of that ability is not only the revelation of Christ but the ownership of the church. Because Christ's revelation to Saul on the way to Damascus could only be fulfilled by the encompassing and the allowance of the church body. Otherwise, how is Saul, now listen, going to have letters in his pocket to persecute and kill those in Damascus, going to just as quickly turn around and start preaching in their synagogues? The church had to allow him in. But I will tell you the power of that conversion becomes pretty amazing and Paul begins to have powerful powerful works take place. How many know that there were many miracles that were in fact wrought at the hands of Paul? Paul, saw, he saw some amazing things. There was a sorcerer in Acts chapter 13 struck with blindness and and ends up being saved. There's this unique dynamic of signs and wonders. 
done not just through Paul, but also through this next guy that's going to allow him. It goes from Ananias to Barnabas, and they're going to allow them to operate because beyond transformation and then now the acceptance, there has to be this partnership, and he begins to minister. In Acts chapter 14, verses 8 through 10, you can read that Paul heals a crippled individual through the power of Jesus Christ. By Acts chapter 16, Acts 16 is when he is casting out the spirit of divination of a woman. How many remember that? When Paul, listen, this is the same guy who a handful of chapters ago was taking people to prison, is now casting out spirits. Many of us, especially in the Pentecostal church, we have preached a lot about Paul and Silas at midnight. What did they do at midnight? They sang and they praised God and the Lord opened up the prison. The only reason they got in prison is because they were doing the work of God. Sometimes doing the work of God will get you into a tricky situation. But often that overwhelming situation can be the setup for the next miracle in your life. And so he casts out that spirit of divination and acts the beginning of 16. And then by the end of 16, we have Paul and Silas singing praises. And I've preached enough meetings and camp meetings to know that every preacher has tried to figure out what song they were singing and the band strikes up and people start clapping and rejoicing and whatever, whatever. Because sometimes it's a miracle that is needed. Acts chapter 19, Paul, this used to be Saul, this guy who worked against them is now seeing and preaching and people are being filled. Twelve men in Acts 19 filled with the power of the Holy Ghost through that ministry. God works in unusual miracles moving on at the hands of Paul in Acts 19. He prays the resurrection. How many know that Paul turned into a long-winded preacher real quick? By Acts 20, he preaches so long that a kid falls out of the window in the third story, dead. That's long preaching. If you ever think pastor's preaching too long, you listen. Paul preached a long time. I don't think you ever preached too long. Why are they laughing? You may be every now and then. You might, might just evaluate it. Just evaluate it. That's all we're He falls out of the window. I'm going to tell you right now, that's a good way to kill a sermon. He's going long into the night and Eutychus, is the boy's name, falls out of the window, dies in front of everybody. The most staggering thing about all of it, Paul just gets up from where he's talking, walks down, lays down, prays for him. The boy gets back up and Paul keeps preaching. <laughs> I don't have that much to say. I promise if somebody gets resurrected, I'm out. Altar call. Follow it forward, Acts 28. We know that Paul is going to shake off a viper. In fact, I think that's what was preached the other night that what started with a bite in the beginning of the ministry and then there's a bite at the end and all whether it's people or whether it's things of the enemy bites happen to good people but it was the shaking off of that it was the shaking off of that they had gone from calling him a murderer to a god why miracle 
miracles were happening. And then he would go in and lay his hands on Publius. That miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. At the hands of a man who put his hands on believers. Why? Because there were miracles and signs and wonders that God wanted to do through this guy who seemingly came too late. But he didn't come too late. He came right on time for the kingdom of God in that moment and in that hour. And let me remind everybody in this room, you're not too late to be effective for the kingdom of God. Wherever you work and wherever you live and wherever you go throughout your day, whether you're the youngest individual to the most aged in this room, hear me, whether you are somebody that works in construction or in a cubicle, whether you're blue collar, white collar, or somewhere in between, it doesn't matter whether you got a head full of hair or no hair on your head, it doesn't matter whether you're male or female, whether you live on the right or the wrong side of the tracks, it just matters, do you want to be used for the kingdom of God and that's what happened Saul wanted to be used based on this revelation and one of the most dangerous things that could ever happen is that we could have a revelation of him and then not be as passionate for him as we were for the world and so when the Lord converts Saul and we start calling him Paul, he becomes passionate about his preaching. He becomes passionate about his prayer meetings. And we see many miracles at the hands of Paul. I will tell you for us in the modern day church, one of the greatest miracles is that Paul was willing to be used by the Spirit to put pen to paper. So that we could read his letters, his epistles, so that we could be the partakers of the text. That as he was inspired, he didn't simply pray, but he, he did something that would stay as a part of the forever. Hmm. What are you doing in your life that will outlast this moment? What is God using you or trying to use you to accomplish? I ask you this as a challenge right now. So that it will outlive your life. God began to work on Paul. And so there were miracles and there were signs and there were wonders. In fact, he's a part of the dynamics where when we look at his ministry, it was so powerful that every time Paul prayed, people expected the miraculous to occur. I've used this illustration before, but as it comes to me right now, I want to use it. Paul was that guy that if he was the evangelist that was at your church, you would want Paul to lay hands on you. Some of us that have grown up in the church, we're used to this, we're comfortable, we know what we mean. Now there's some people you don't want to lay hands on you. Come on, you lie, you fry. There's, there's some people that you... I've been in churches where I watched people look for who was praying where. I've said it this way. I want to say it this way again. If Paul was laying hands on people during our prayer service, Paul's the guy I want to pray for me. Miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. I want Paul praying for me. No offense, pastor, pray for me. But if Paul's there, I want him to. Brother so-and-so comes to try to lay Paul's right about to you. And brother so-and-so comes to lay hands on you, pray for you. Bob and weave. 
Come on, Mr. Miyagi, just. I can remember being a young man preaching somewhere and praying for the sick, and I got to somebody, and they said, can you have them pray for me? I have nobody pray for you. Nobody wants to pray for you. You just, my prayers weren't good enough for them. I'd want Paul praying for me. I'd want him laying hands on me, and you would too. You know why? That's normal. He's seeing miracles everywhere. But where we're picking up this letter is maybe one of the most important parts of Paul's entire life. He's aging. His eyes are failing. He's at a place in life where it seems to be winding down. He's he's had to question whether there's enough in retirement. But he's not talking about a 401k or something that was placed into a salary over a period of time based on percentages. He is finally in this place of questioning, have I done enough? For the next generation. And so when you read through the letter of 2 Timothy. You are reading his affirming stance to his young protege. And it was it is absolutely the pages. While you might not recognize. They are drenched in doctrine. And they are saying to this young protege that's coming after him. You better stand for the doctrine. Believe it and allow it to be applicable to your life. Please allow me for the next moment to preach to you as though you are Timothy from the very heartbeat and the words of God through Paul to you. I want to treat you like he treated Timothy for just a moment. He made a resolute determination to every hearer that was coming after him. Although Timothy was the individual, you as the modern day church are just as much who he was preaching to because he was looking at us and he was telling us Don't let any wind of doctrine detour who you are and this faith that has been given and delivered unto you. Don't let the things that creep in and the idolatry of this world do not allow it to pull this out. You've got to recognize Paul is writing in a time where it seemed like such debauchery and sin was working through. If you look at the paganism and the idol thinking and the absolute perversion of Rome in this day, it is honestly extremely mirrored to what we're living through it's unbelievable and yet in the middle of that they were having explosive revival where they were planting churches all over and there is this young believer coming behind him and and he's preaching but he's preaching with a pen because he's locked up in prison and he's at a place in his life where he said I've prayed multiple times three different times I've prayed for this thorn in my flesh this thing I'm dealing with but somehow I'm still dealing with it and the Lord has had to reveal to me that his grace is sufficient And in spite of what I'm dealing with. So Paul begins to eloquently and powerfully under the inspiration of the Spirit. Begin to write this letter. And he's telling him what he's looking for. And he's telling him what he's longing for. And he's wanting his cloak. And he's wanting those parchments. And and he's wanting. And he begins to talk to him about people that he should be weary of. Like Alexander the coppersmith. You better watch out. God's going to do back to him. He's going to take care. It's almost as if the Lord is allowing him to vent through the pen. It's a little different than what a lot of people do on Facebook, but he's writing this letter out, and as he's writing this letter, if you're if you're the young man, if you're young Timothy, if you're the protege, or maybe in our case the modern day church, you read this letter and you wonder how could he be so passionate from the gray, cold walls of a prison cell? 
It's because he understood and recognized my time is closing and the next generation is going to need to have this as firmly fastened as it's been in my life through shipwreck and peril, through turbulence. Come on through tribulation and turbulence and all the endeavors that I've had to walk through. I've made this determination in my life that the doctrine and the gospel is the most important thing. And he's writing all of this to Timothy. And yet what I believe is maybe one of the most transparent moments in the entire life of Paul is recorded here in the final verses of this book. In the, in the final, final couple of verses when you get to verse 20. It feels to me like it comes out of of nowhere Paul who prayed for everybody and they were healed has a viper bite him at what should have been the end and shakes it off and then everybody on that island gets healed even down to Publius's father it becomes one of the most dramatic things in all Paul is known as the guy you want praying for you and in his closing he says Trophimus he's at Miletus I left him there sick I don't know why the Lord has so impressed me to preach what I'm going to preach and try to finish in this room. But you need to hear me right now. You better recognize that Paul prayed for Trophimus. It's not that Paul did not pray for Trophimus. It's that what Paul prayed did not get answered the way Paul wanted it answered. Let it sink for a second. Trophimus is a guy that Paul risked his very life for. Go read about him in Acts 20 and Acts 21. Trophimus is a guy that they did not want in the temple. In fact, they were so mad that he was in. He was a Gentile believer. They did not want him there. When they found out Trophimus was even around, they thought Paul had allowed him to come into the temple, and they rise up against them. Read it in Acts 20. Read it in Acts 21. You'll find it. Let me give you a little illustration. This is ridiculous, but last night, me, my dad, and two of my boys, I th actually all three of my boys, we went on a cat hunt. <laughs> if you know my dad, my dad's a little meticulous. He likes his garage to be a certain way. It looks very nice. And yet the other night, the kids were playing, and they had the garage doors open. And Pastor, when we came home, there was a, there was a brown present that had been left in the garage. And um, some kind of animal had gotten in while we were, I guess, gone, or the doors were open or whatever. And they thought, well, it must have just passed through until the doors had been closed, the brown gift had been removed. And we came back yesterday and there was a new brown gift. And so we recognized there must be some kind of an animal living. You're not having a good day until you Google what kind of brown gift it is. <laughs> Turned out to be cat scat and... Um, so we went on a hunt. We went on an adventure. Couldn't find it anywhere until finally in the very back corner we did. Ladies and gentlemen, I bear in my body the marks <laughs> of falling off of the ladder last night 
when I scared that cat. It jumped, I jumped. We jumped. <laughs> Any shred of dignity I had or composure that I thought I could keep it together in a moment. I'm telling you, when that cat jumped out of that ceiling, whew, I almost lost the ghost. I got scratch on my arm. I got a big bruise down my side. I ri somehow ripped the top of my sock. You fall hard when you rip the top of your sock. I don't even understand how the dynamics of that work. I'm losing most of my hair. I didn't have much wind drag when I fell. I just... For the next 30 minutes, we fought through every crack and crevice of up there trying to get that thing off of Christmas decorations and boxes. I'm telling you, boxes were falling. We were letting them fall. Dust was falling. Carver went to sneezing and crying. and We didn't care. The cat had to go. The cat had to go. The cat had to go. No more brown gifts. No more brown gifts. The cat had to go. We did everything we could until finally, before... God is my witness and the, and the others that were in the room. Finally, we pushed on that cat and he jumped down from the top of that thing. When he jumped down from the top of that thing, he ran up to try to get out the window, but the window was closed. Blinds were shredded. Blind, blinds look like Swiss cheese when he's done. There's wreckage everywhere, but we wanted that cat. I'm telling you, 30 minutes at least, maybe longer than that, that we wrestled with a cat that don't weigh, he don't weigh two pounds. Till we finally drove it out of that room. Listen, every person in the garage, we looked at each other like we were the baddest dudes in the entire world when we finally ran. I walked back into the house like this. No cat has ever seen the likes. <laughs> Why? All because John Carson didn't want that cat in his garage, and I don't blame him. I don't blame him. But the disdain we felt about the brand, brown gifts being left by that cat, they pale in comparison to the way they felt about Trophimus having been in that temple. If you, you've never heard of racism or prejudice any greater than what had happened when they thought Trophimus had ended up in the temple. But Paul's mission, knowing what God had saved him from, was not just for people that looked like him and talked like him and acted like him. That's why we're in a dangerous place. If everybody in our group has to look like us, talk like us, act like us, be, if the only people invited into our temple. And they hated Paul. But Paul loved Trophimus in spite of it. And Paul kept him close. So close, in fact, not only did he walk that journey in Acts 20 and Acts 21, but in his, listen, in his dying words with a pen, he has to tell his young protege, Timothy, I left, I left Trophimus sick. I want to talk to somebody in this room today, and I, I, I understand if you've heard me preach, this is different than you normally do. It's a little more somber than normally you hear me, but it's for this reason. The Lord told me there's people in this place, you're a part of this church, and life circumstances have crippled you. You've had things happen in the last year, last six months, things that have hit your life, and you can't understand why. And you think it's your faith, but I'm here to tell you it's not your faith. That's about as quiet as I expected. Hear me. Sometimes people trophimus. I'm going to say it again. Sometimes God doesn't heal Trophimus. 
Well, that's discouraging. Thanks for coming. Here's my question. If God doesn't do it your way, is he still going to be worthy of you writing the next letter? Because it seems to me like when God refused to heal Trophimus, that would have been a good place for Paul to say, then this is no longer worthy of being imprisoned over. Why would I keep preaching a gospel that's going to get me into prison when my prayers are no longer working? And yet the truth is, even though he's praying for Trophimus and Trophimus isn't getting healed, he's still preaching as strong as he's ever preached and believing as strong as he's ever believed before. What about when things don't go our way? Because I I know that you're a man of faith, Pastor, and I pastor a church just a couple hours from here, but I've got to be honest. I'm praying a lot of prayers that I'm not seeing. In the last week, I've had cancers dried up, and they're miraculous, and they're incredible, and we we rejoice, and we shout, and we dance, and we thank God for it, and we do all that. But I've also got some prayer requests right now that I've prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed, and nothing's happening. Who in this room, let's just poll the crowd. This is going to be one of the weirdest polls you've ever done. Who in this room's ever prayed prayers that nothing happened? (laughs) Let's write a song about that. That'd be fun. If you walk in broke, you're going to walk out the same. I'm preaching to you even if you do. He's good. I don't think you have to walk out despondent because he's a, he's a healer and a deliverer and we, we believe in Isaiah that he was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement of our peace. Now I ask that question, let me ask this one. How many have prayed and God has answered your prayer before he? And so we get in our pulpits and we say things like, if he did it then he can do it now and we all go, wow, and we should. But my question for you from the letter of Paul is, is he worthy even if he doesn't? Even if he doesn't answer it the way we're praying for it. Because I've got some things I've been praying for that he's not doing. But if somehow the goodness of God is relegated to the answering of my prayer, if somehow he's only worth praising if my prayer request But the reality is this. This world is not our home anyway. James said that life here is a vapor. It appears for a little while and then it vanisheth away. It's like blowing that candle out during the fall. You got that little pumpkin spice candle. Blow that out, that little steam. James said that's all your life is. Ladies and gentlemen, I remind you here today. Maybe you have suffered great loss in your life. Maybe you have been praying for a healing or a deliverance or a You've been praying and there's no answer. And maybe the trophimus of your life lies sick at Miletus while everybody moves on. And you think, if God was really good, I wouldn't feel this way. I wouldn't be overwhelmed like this. But a part of this revival thing you've got going on, the Lord sent me here to tell you His goodness is not based on your feelings. 
His goodness is not based on whether or not Trophimus stays sick. Paul, you got to pull the pen out. You got to pull the parchments out, even in this prison cell, and say the doctrine is worth writing about, and the doctrine is worth keeping, and the goodness of God. You might not have received the right doctors. I understand I'm messing with some people's theology, and I'm going to be done in just a second. But what happens if you don't get the doctor's report? What happens if, God forbid, we pray? Forgive the heart of this pastor, but I've prayed over people in the last few years. I know I touched God about it. I still stood over them at that cough. I still had to preach their funeral in front of everybody. And I've had to come to terms with this reality. If he heals us, he's good. But if he doesn't, he's good. If he raises up that body, he's good. If he doesn't, he's good. Come on, where are my real believers? If the... Come on, if the baby gets better, he's good. But if the baby doesn't, he's good. If the ears get better, he's good. But if they don't, he is good. If your life is full of joy, he's good. But if you're still borderline all the time, you've got a reason to walk in this house and say it's the doctrine that saved me, not my feelings. It is the doctrine of... Stand with me in the house. I want to give you hope. Pastor Carson, why would you preach this? Because people all over this room have secret doubt. You don't want anybody to know. (laughs) You think if you're not happy, something's wrong with you. If that that miracle doesn't happen, and I can feel, man, I can feel it even now. Some people in the room, man, he he must not be a faith guy. You telling me Paul didn't have faith? <laughs> Please hear me clearly in this room as I conclude. Your unanswered prayer is not the result of an unavailable God. I know this isn't for everybody, but it's for a few that need to finally move forward. I want you to, if you're willing, if you're comfortable, I need you to just right where you're at, maybe make an altar by lifting your hands for a moment. I know this is going to be heavy for a few people because that's why I'm here. You've somehow thought it was a you problem. It's not a you problem. It's not a goodness of God issue. Life's just tough. Bad things just happen. But the God who has brought you to this will be the same God who can carry you through this. I've got a tough appeal. Maybe we'll sing in a few minutes. I just want to hover for a minute. Um, Got a tough appeal today because it, it challenges and it calls for vulnerability. But we believe in this church, whether you're a regular member or maybe you're newer to the church, we believe in the sacredness of con- confession and kind of moving forward. We call this area around the front. This is our altar space, and it's just kind of this 
sacred area where we have prayer. Same carpet, same lumber that's under, but it's just this just this place we come together. And one of the great things that happened is ministry and elders and the body. We come together and we pray for one another. It's very biblical. It's the working together and the prayer together. So what I'm about to ask is I want to ask people, please allow this moment of vulnerability. The Trophimus of your world is sick in Miletus. And you're having a hard time moving forward. You're having a hard time letting new letters of your life be written. Because your heart's in Miletus. Your, your emotions are still in that loss. You can't get your mind into today because your mind is still in July. You can't. You can't. You haven't been right since the divorce. You, you haven't. You haven't been right since they died. You haven't been right since the diagnosis. You just... God sent me here on a very specific assignment for some people in this room to tell you your life gets to move forward. In spite of the fact that He didn't answer it the way you prayed. Boy, I feel the weight of this right now. I know it causes vulnerability, but if you're here... And you know I'm talking to you because you need to move on. You need to move on. It was a bad report. It was a bad loss. It was something. But you know you got to move on. I want you to come to the front. I don't want you to be embarrassed. I'm telling you there's healing and deliverance that's going to happen for some people in this prayer. Thank you for breaking the ice and for coming. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Just come right up to the very front, if you will might be a family issue, I understand, it might be, whether you want to stand or whether you want to kneel, I just want you to come to the front, I want our ministers, our elders, I want you to come first behind them, come on, that's alright, let the tears out. Because from today forward, you're going to start writing letters again. You're going to start living again from today. Everything you say isn't going to be laced with despair because Trophimus is in Miletus sick. I don't know why it happened. I don't know why you prayed and nothing. I don't know. But I do know the Lord sent me to tell you He's still good and He still loves you. He still cares for you. He still has a purpose for your life. Now let the church body be the church body. Would you feel directed? Would you gather? Just gather around them if you feel led and pray. Come on, just pray one for another, one for another, one for another. That the strength of God would be with them and upon them. Come on, that's it. Those of you that are praying, that's okay. I know those warm tears, let them fall. That's all right. It's broke your heart. 
It's hurt you deeply. You've been wounded by it. But I want you to accept and receive that love of God for, in spite of your situation. In spite of those antagonizing lies of the enemy that tell you if God really loved you, He'd have answered your prayer. That if God really loved you, you'd feel better. That's a lie from the enemy. That's a lie.